Kelsey, and Jenny Pickett is here too. She's the coordinator of ISGAP, and I'm pleased to welcome uh, several friends in the audience. <coughs> so Mary and Richard are going to be working with us, I just found out, which is wonderful. Judy Parski is here. She's an expert on the subject of uh, radical Islam and related matters, so it's nice to have you here. Um, and we're honored that Michael is here. Michael Wodanski is currently the Schusterman Visiting Professor at UC Irvine. Uh, he served as a political advisor to the Israeli negotiating teams uh, over the years, from Isaac Shamir and beyond, I believe. Um, he is um, currently he's a Strategic Affairs Advisor for Israel's Ministry of Public Security. He used to be. He holds five degrees from Columbia University, the American University in Cairo, and Bar Ilan University. And he's the author of a book which we have on sale here or for distribution, which is entitled Battle of Our Battle for Our Minds, Western Elites and the Terror Threat. It's by Simon Schuster. And I, I'm not just saying this to be polite, it's, it's a, an important book to read, and I urge you to get it. It's very important. I learned a lot of things in that book that are of value. So Thank you for your contribution. Um, Dr. Wilansky teaches at Bar-Ilan University. He taught at Hebrew University for more than two decades and has been a visiting professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, and he also uh, teaching in uh, National Geospatial, uh, he was teaching at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and as a research fellow at the Shalem Center in Jerusalem. Uh, Dr. Olemsky was a reporter for the New York Times and also wrote for the Daily News, the New York Post, the Arts, and the Jerusalem Post, as well as the National Review and the New Republic. He was the Middle East correspondent, the correspondent for Cox, the Cox News Agency and was a diplomatic correspondent and Arab affairs correspondent for Israel Television and the Israeli Army Radio. So it's a great honor that you came all the way from California. And thank you very much. And also as a footnote, um, Michael will be speaking at 12.30 at our offices in, on 56th Street. So if you want more information about that, tomorrow at 12.30, that will be happy. What is intelligence? And what is terror? The idea of my book is that they're both connected. The terrorist wants to capture the space between your ears, not necessarily your territory. 
because once he's captured the space between your ears, he can lead you by the nose. And intelligence is the foremost tool that we can use to fight terrorism. Intelligence is important in all wars. But when you're fighting huge numbers of people with tank columns, intelligence is not as important as it is in fighting people who are looking for the weakest link in your society. And the problem with intelligence is when you don't have it in several different senses, you lose the war. How is it that the West, the West's intellectuals, the West's intelligence agencies, are so often so wrong about the Middle East? How are we surprised by 9-11? How come we keep on getting fooled by the mirages of Arab Spring, Arab moderation, and Islamic democracy? How is it that we have intelligent people like President Obama or the Director of National Intelligence, Lieutenant General James Clapper, who used to be the head of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, where I lectured, how is it that they believe in the moderation of Syria, Iran, and the Muslim Brotherhood? Let's remember that President Obama overruled the express wishes of Congress not to send an ambassador to Syria, and he did it only a few months before Assad started on his 100,000-man murder spree. Obama wasn't particularly vexed originally by what was going on with the Iranian repression of the phony elections in 2009. And Clapper appeared before Congress in February 2011 and said with a straight face to a congressional committee that the Muslim Brotherhood is a largely moderate, largely secular group with lots of, what was the term he used? Um, they use it also for McDonald's. They have lots of uh, franchises throughout the Middle East. So I was talking about McDonald's. Later he pulled back his remarks, but all, even if you're good with drones, if you don't know where to point them, or why to point them, or how to point them, they're not worth very much. And why these people believe in these mirages is tied to a combination of prejudices that we call Arabism, I call Islamophilia, and even anti-Semitism or Jewishism. These feelings are not the specific preserve of the American left or any particular organization. They also appear on the right. They appear in the religious community. They, they appear in the secular community. In the 1930s through the 1950s, Arabism, Islamophilia, and anti-Semitism were championed on the American right, also in the religious community. They were linked to the oil industry, to missionaries in Lebanon and Syria, who basically brought the ideas of Wataniya, which is nationalism on a state level, and Kaumiya, pan-Arab nationalism. And there was even a sincere belief among US officials, the State Department, 
that America would lose influence among the Arabs and access to petroleum products if Israel supported the idea of Jewish statehood. We all know the fact that the entire State Department, the entire State Department, George Marshall, Dean Rusk, all of them opposed recognizing Israel. In fact, George Marshall told Truman that he would resign and vote for the Republican if Truman recognized the state of Israel. Uh, Robert Kaplan describes some of these phenomena in his uh, book, The Arabists, which I've highlighted here. Many of the Arabists were sincere. Some of them had knowledge of the Arab world and Arabic, but many did not. Many more did not. But they took an overly romantic and naive view towards Arab intentions. If you've ever seen Peter O'Toole in the movie Lawrence of Arabia, it's a little bit like that. You get on a horse, you put on a scarf, and you move forward. In recent years, these ideas have been associated more closely with the intellectual <coughs> left, especially in the United States, particularly with Edward Said and his followers. And Said worked particularly hard to undermine American influence in the Middle East. Said was a professor at Columbia University. I took three degrees at Columbia. I was the editor of the Columbia Barnard Course Guide, which was the largest review of teachers at any university in the United States. The Harvard Confi Guide didn't come up to our ankles. So much for Harvard. And we were very much aware of who Said and other people in the English department were. Said was a protege of Lionel Trilling. The School of Criticism, Literary Criticism. <coughs> he was not an expert on the Middle East. And until the mid-1970s, he wasn't much of an activist. But apparently, the Six-Day War had an impact on him. He did not seize planes. He did not make bombs. But he hijacked much of the American community, the American intellectual community. And he paralyzed its critical faculties. His book, Orientalism, stigmatized, stained, besmirched the whole study of the Middle East. In Arabic, somebody who is an Orientalist is called mustashrik. It's a kind of a verb form which has a connotation, you want to be like the East. Said was basically saying that if you were studying the Middle East, you were trying to seize its power. It's a little bit like the Dr. Strangelove guy you're trying to, who said in his movie, seize their bodily fluids. Well, if you look at the cover of Orientalism, this was a cover, of course, that was approved by Said. It has a boy dancing naked in front of a, uh, a Muslim monarch. And it was Said's way of saying, this is the way the West views the East, in almost sexual terms, trying to rape the East. Said said to have knowledge of such a thing is to dominate it. He thought 
that the West wanted to dominate the East, and therefore he wanted to make it dumber. And he succeeded. 9-11 proved it. He thought everybody who was studying the Middle East was an imperialist, was a racist. Of course, their Arabic was a lot better than his. He barely knew Arabic. In the 1970s, he went to Lebanon to try and study when he was middle-aged. He didn't succeed. Incidentally, I challenge any of you to pick up a copy of Orientalism and to find one single source in Arabic. Not one. You'll see La, La Rochefoucauld, Fontaine, Montaigne. You'll have everybody cited in European languages. Not a single solitary source in Arabic. In his whole life, Said never wrote an article published in his lifetime with an Arabic source. After he died, his wife published an article that supposedly had an Arabic source. That was his second wife. It was baloney, which is what the Egyptians called kalam fadi, empty talk. Said was always happy to throw rocks, figuratively and literally. He was ready to defend Saddam Hussein, Ayatollah Khomeini. When the Iranian Revolution took place, the New York Times chose to quote him. He was new to Middle East studies. He was an English professor at Columbia University who didn't speak Arabic. They quoted him. They didn't quote Bernard Lewis. You know what Bernard Lewis did? He said, I don't really know Khomeini. I never heard of him. I didn't really follow him. He's not my area of expertise. He went to the Princeton Library and he got Khomeini speeches that had been translated into Arabic. And he went through the whole book. And he said, this guy is not good. He is not moderate. But Jimmy Carter and the State Department people and Andrew Young at the UN, Andy Young said, hey, Khomeini, ain't he some kind of a saint? Real saintly. The position idolizing Khomeini or Arafat or, is a position that's also been championed by Noam Chomsky. Here's a picture of Chomsky when he was giving a eulogy to Saeed. Saeed and Chomsky, when they were both alive, Chomsky is still alive, were the two living sources most cited on American University college campuses and syllabi. There, there actually are surveys of these things. And it's amazing that Chomsky, who was a linguistics professor, and Edward Said, who was a comparative literature professor, who made, who basically wrote about Joseph Conrad, that was his doctorate, they're telling the world about what is the Middle East, and they're being taken seriously. Both of them called America and Israel the terrorists. The PLO, Saddam Hussein, Ayatollah Khomeini, Hamas, Hezbollah, they're okay. The picture you had before of Saeed at the border throwing rocks at Israel from Lebanon, he'd earlier been on radio and television with the head of Hezbollah, Sheikh Hassan Nasrallah. On the second anniversary of 9-11, <coughs> The Middle East Studies Association bestowed its first Edward Said Award for Middle East Studies 
in memory of Edward Said on September 11, 2003. It's mind-boggling, but it's very symbolic of what had happened to Middle East studies in the United States. It is no accident that many of America's top thinkers, top functionaries, people who studied at Columbia, Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, leaders in government, the media, I'm not going to go into all of them now. I describe it in my book. They prefer to dwell on the hate crimes committed against Muslims rather than the hate crimes committed by Arabs and Muslims against others. By the way, if you go through the U.S. crime statistics, you will find that the number of hate crimes committed against Jews in the United States since 9-11 is consistently six to eight times as high as what's committed against Muslims, and there have been almost no variation, no jump in crimes against Muslims except for that very first year after 9-11, then it went back down. So that's the record of Eric Holder, the Attorney General, and his boss, Barack Obama, they're much more concerned about hate crimes against Muslims. And so is the New York Times and the Associated Press, which is why the New York Times and the Associated Press like to focus on the New York Police Department or the National Security Agency or the CIA doing terrible things. This is especially true when there's a Republican in the government rather than a Democrat. Otherwise, they don't really like to cover it that much. <clears throat> they don't do stories about how mosques in Queens or Jersey City are being used as basis for attacks that will occur in 1993 or 2001. After the Fort Hood massacre, top people in the Obama administration said that what happened in Fort Hood was workplace violence. The head of the U.S. Army said he was happy that at least they hadn't stigmatized the Muslim. I'll go into it a little bit later. And the U.S. media basically tried to cover it up. Time magazine asked, is he really a terrorist? The New York Times suggested that Nidal Malik Hassan broke under stress, war-related stress. I don't think he was ever overseas, certainly not in Afghanistan, not in Iraq. Army Chief of Staff George Casey, who should have been fired for this, said it would be a great shame if our diversity became a casualty as well. Let me tell you something. The Fort Hood murderer was known before he committed the murder, both to the U.S. Army and to the FBI. They had his emails. They had him acting out in public, and they should have prevented the murder. The fact that it didn't happen, I'm telling you, is cause for the firing of the FBI field office there in uh, Texas, and also the director of the FBI, and also the head of the Army. There's a Senate report, 61 pages long, that goes into this. Some of it has been redacted, but Mother Jones magazine got some of the material. They had his emails. He was writing to Anwar Awlaki, the Al-Qaeda recruiter. 
They had this material months before the murder, months before the terror attack. Can you imagine what would have happened if George H.W. Bush had been guilty of something like this? If Edgar Hoover had been guilty of something like this? If Richard Nixon? William Westmoreland? I mean, people would go to town on this. It would be tempting to suggest that willful ignorance is only a result of prejudices held by certain groups in Western society. <coughs> but Edward Said and Noam Chomsky didn't do it by themselves. They were coming across fertile ground because in the 1970s, oil money came into the United States and into academia and began to undermine American academia. You know, they say in, Rush, in uh, Latin or Middle English, radix malorum escupidas, money is the root of all evil. There are a lot of former American presidents who've gotten a lot of money for their libraries from the Saudi Arabian government. They got the money, but we may be paying the price. Our intellectual centers have been undermined. So let's go back to the original question. Has America's intelligence, in every sense of the word, been undermined by anti-Semitism, Islamophilia, Arabism, and other prejudices? The attitude towards Islam and the Arabs is important because, you know something? Samuel Huntington was right when he wrote in 1993 and again in 1996, The Clash of Civilizations. Incidentally, Huntington was basing himself on work done by other people, Barry Buzan in Britain, and Bernard Lewis. Bernard Lewis, not just in articles for commentary in Atlantic, but first with a, a lecture given at Indiana University in 1963, talked about these ideas. And he's not the only one. It's important to understand that today, most of the serious terrorists in the world and the serious clashes along the rim of Islam are between Islam and Islam or Islam and non-Islam. They are not usually within Christendom or within Judaism or Hindu or Buddhist. The attitude towards Israel is important because Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, and it's the country that has the most hands-on experience with Arab Islamic terror. For better or worse, Israel has become the most inventive in fighting terrorism because necessity is the mother of invention, and the Israelis had to be good to survive. And when senior American officials or academics slough off the Israelis or pretend that they don't know anything or that they're trying to gain power over the American establishment, I won't, I'm not going in in this lecture to Stephen Walt and, uh, and Mearsheimer and uh, their book and others of the same ilk or statements by people who are heads of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about the US centers of power being taken over by Jews or Israelis. But there's a serious problem here. Israel is not a monster. Israel is an asset, a tremendous intelligence asset, a tremendous operational asset, 
for the West. And when people besmirch it, they're throwing away diamonds. When senior American officials habitually err when they study the past history and likely future of the Middle East, it has to do very often with prejudice. And that means they're going to get it wrong when they deal with terror. Just weeks before 9-11, a former CIA official wrote in the New York Times op-ed page that when people speak about extremist Islamic groups causing most terrorism, they're bedeviled by a fantasy. You haven't heard much from this guy since, but he was in the New York Times. But it wasn't the first time. In 1992, Graham Fuller, who was the CIA's top guy on the Middle East, was saying that Islamic fundamentalism is historically inevitable and politically tameable. 200,000 people beheaded later in Algeria. We can say he was probably wrong, but we have his words enshrined on the Washington Post op-ed page. He's only one of many CIA officials who've gotten things exactly wrong. You can use them as reverse compasses. If they tell you that way is east, it's west. John Brennan, you've all heard of John Brennan. He's been here, he's been at Fordham. He's been at Georgetown. He's been at a few other places where he tries to speak in Arabic in front of Arab students. It's pretty funny to watch, actually. He speaks Arabic like broken Yiddish. It's really hard to watch. It's like listening to my first sentence in French. Jean Tridon's la Sally de Classy. It's really painful. He's been translating jihad for us, and he says it's a spiritual journey. Let me tell you something about jihad. Jihad is the third verbal form in Arabic, jahada. You, you know this, of course, very well. And it means to struggle, but its primary meaning in Arabic is physical holy war. Just as the word in Hebrew, milchama, means war. Just as the word war in English means war. Yes, you can have a war on poverty. You can have a war on hunger. But the term war has a meaning. And when the term jihad is used in the Quran or in the hadith, the oral sources, it's not the spiritual journey. But if you study with some people like John Esposito at Georgetown, they'll tell you, never mind. Paul Pilar, one of the CIA's top guys on the Middle East, no Arabic, no Farsi, no Hebrew, but Princeton PhD, top assistant to CIA director Tenet, wrote the National Intelligence Estimate a couple of times. He justified supporting Bashar Assad so much for supporting Arabism. He said Iran had no intentions of reaching a nuclear bomb. There isn't a major statement this guy has made in the last 15 years that isn't absolutely wrong. And he writes in a prolific manner for all kinds of journals, and they treat him seriously. 
When the 1993 World Trade Center occurred, he made fun of them and said they were ad hoc terrorists. Let me tell you something. When somebody blows up your biggest building and is three feet away from killing 50,000 people, they are not ad hoc terrorists. They are the real McCoy. And if the car bomb at the base of the World Trade Center in 1993 had been moved over a few feet, the support column of the building, of one building, would have fallen into the other building, and 50,000 people would have died in five minutes. Not 3,000, not 30,000, 50,000, at least. So when this guy says they're ad hoc terrorists, and everybody goes to sleep for eight years, they are not experts. A few months before 9-11, Pilar's book, Terrorism and U.S. Foreign Policy, appeared. And he took all kinds of ridiculous views, such as saying that only a fraction of the attacks around the world could be blamed on Islam. Anybody who read the State Department's sanitized annual reports, patterns of global terrorism, knew that this was wrong. By the way, we're going through a similar thing right now. There have been more attacks and attempted attacks in the last three to five years than in the previous seven. We're on an upswing. But that didn't stop Pilar from saying, I apologize for the uh, spelling error in lightning. I meant to take that out. <laughs> he said that lightning, getting struck by lightning or falling in the bathtub was more likely than being hit by terrorism. So much for another great prediction. Worse than all of these people is Michael Scheuer, the head of the bin Laden unit at the CIA. This is uh, Scheuer. Scheuer is uh, an admirer of bin Laden. He said it many times. I had a fight with the legal department at Simon & Schuster to get it into the book. I said, oh no, you can't. I said, believe me, he's an admirer. And then when I finally could show them on a YouTube that he actually said it publicly, they said, okay, I guess we can use it. Uh, he's so far left or so far right, he comes around both ends. He's now with, with Rand Paul, and he blames the Jews for the attacks on the United States. And he also says that Jews in America are like the Copperheads, people in the North who were traitorous to the Union and were supporting the Confederacy. Uh, by the way, Scheuer, no Arabic, no anything. He somehow thinks that Iraq is the holiest site in Islam. He wrote it a few times in his books. He got permission from this man, George Tenet, to write his books under a pseudonym, uh, anonymous. Nothing was taken out. People who actually know about the Middle East, serious field officers like Robert Baer, had their works tremendously redacted, edited, censored, and held up for months. The sad truth is that the CIA in the 1990s lost most of its good people because it became overly political. There are very few people in the counter-terror executive 
who speak foreign languages at all, specifically Arabic. Very few. At one point, two out of 30 people had foreign languages. And the head of counter-terror was a man who converted to Islam. And six or seven field officers around the world for the CIA had converted to Islam. But they're worried about Jonathan Pollard. Tennant promoted people like Pilar and Scheuer, and supported their books. Scheuer admitted, as long as the book was being used to bash the president, they gave me carte blanche to talk to the media. This kind of intellectual shallowness, I talk about it in depth in my book, was a far cry from the people who were at the creation of the CIA, the people in the Office of Strategic Services, like some of the people who were my professors at Columbia, people who knew the languages, people who'd lived in the area, people who'd been officers. They rubbed up against people in the bazaars, in the mosques, they had hands-on intelligence. You know, it's perfectly legitimate to criticize Israel. It's perfectly legitimate to oppose the policies of George Bush, of Republicans. I don't care. I oppose them also many times. I'm not a fan of Jonathan Pollard, by the way. But the intensity of anti-Israeli feeling and the shallow analysis in dealing with the Middle East is based on prejudice, and you see this particularly when there's a difference of opinion on policy inside the intelligence community. In the Pollard case, this is very clear. Aldrich Ames, Robert Hansen, the head of FBI counterintelligence. Ames, an important uh, spy and of course the Walker spiring, they were guilty of real betrayal of the United States, wanting to hurt the United States, giving material to the Soviet Union, and the deaths of scores of American intelligence agents. All of this was blamed on Jonathan Pollard. Nobody's ever apologized to Pollard. There were people in the US government, and there still are, including Caspar Weinberger, who put this on Pollard. There are a lot of people today who are moving to try to get Pollard released. It's amazing how this is being resisted. One of the reasons it's being resisted is that it was such a huge miscarriage of justice, such a huge mess up in terms of moles penetrating US intelligence, that to admit how wrong they were is just too hard to imagine. Pollard was guilty of passing information to Israel. But he wasn't interested in hurting the United States. He was interested in giving Israel information on what was going on in the Gulf. This is not the case of Oliver James, or Robert Hansen, or the Walker Spire. <clears throat> Pollard was blamed for all those deaths, but they were the ones who were responsible. Pollard is still paying for those charges that he was accused of falsely. And a few years ago, they launched another witch hunt against APAC. And this was also shown to be completely boundless. Nevertheless, it took a lot of time till the charges were disproved. So the real question is, 
<clears throat> why waste time on phony spy scandals when there is real damage to US intelligence from Russian-backed or Islamic-backed penetration rings at the highest level of the US government? Do you know that the information that was used on the first World Trade Center attack was supplied to a large extent by a man by the name of Ali Muhammad, who was an Egyptian major who trained Osama bin Laden's bodyguards, but was the top advisor to the Joint Chiefs of Staff on training people for the Middle East. To this day, information that he gave away is being used by Islamic groups around the world. There are people who are making fun of five congressmen, or Congress people, or Congress, whatever you want to call them, from Gomer to Michelle Bachman, because they talk about the fact that Hillary Clinton's closest assistant, her whole family, Umabdi is associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Now it's easy to make fun of Michelle Bachman. She doesn't know how to pronounce the word chutzpah. She says chutzpah. Some people laugh and they say she doesn't know anything. But she happened to be right. And I know personally from people in the National Security Agency, people at the Joint Chiefs, that today if you want to lecture in these organizations about Islam, you have to be vetted by various Islamic groups. And you can't even use the term Islamic extremism. You cannot use the term Arab Islamic terrorism. It's a no-no. If you cannot name your enemy, you will not be able to defeat your enemy. That's the sad truth. But the good truth is, you can defeat the enemy. We can defeat the enemy. In Israel, we've done a pretty good job. We mess up a lot of times. The recent release of terrorists is a mess up, and I can talk to you about it sometime. But in general, we've had tremendous success. So much so that Barack Obama is now copying our drone program <laughs> and other things. But that's not the only thing. So we can fight terrorism, but we have to put aside politically correct and prejudice and Islamophilia I'm not saying, God forbid, go out and distrust every Muslim you meet, go out and distrust every Jew you meet, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever. No. I'm saying study and base yourself on facts, not on political trend lines. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to start with the first question. Sure. So when I give lectures these days, I use the term I say a lot, you can't wake up a dog that's pretending to sleep. What, so you described very well a very dire situation, and it's only getting worse. In the last few years, radical Islam, uh, Islamism is taking over mosques in the West, regimes and states in the Middle East, and they're their ideology and their agenda to anybody who takes the time to read is very clear, very consistent, very open, very overt. They don't uh, shy away. And as a, as a side, the other day I was at Harvard speaking to young students at Hillel who studied Jewish and Islamic, doing a master's degree in Islam and Judaism. And I was astounded, astounded by, I, I, I would even have to say almost brainwashing. The curriculum that they're reading to I mean, they're reading radical, radical Ayatollahs from Iran, 
and are passing it off as scholarship, and they're buying into this whole brotherhood. And anybody who criticizes radical Islam is uh, Islamophobic and the like. How how do we in the in in the intellectual circles and the media and universities, how do we confront it when our community, the Jewish community, the human rights community, is silent? Where people who deal with this issue, I would even say, are, are literally marginalized and not not enjoyed to have around. How do we how do we deal with these issues in a very dark time? I was just speaking to somebody here, I won't say who oh, does amazing work and it's not easy. There's really there's a backlash against people who are doing this taking this issue seriously. How do you the first thing you do is you embarrass them with the truth. It used to be that the American right was dealing with this view. And you will still get people on the right, uh, usually isolationists, who support this basic view of Islam. Rand Paul, for example, has said publicly, if the US hadn't gone into Iraq, <coughs> hadn't gone into Afghanistan, bin Laden would not have attacked the United States. He said this in a variety of ways. I believe this is a foolish view. Nevertheless, it's been supported, especially on the, the right, but also on the left. You'll hear people on Fox News, where Scheuer appeared many times, Bill O'Reilly, this fellow McGurk, who's on uh, Don Imus, they'll say it all the time. If the U.S. didn't support Israel, it wouldn't have been attacked. I take two or three facts, and I prove that they're idiots. And that's the way to do it. Let me show you. Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda movement is a direct descendant of the Muslim Brotherhood. The man who was Osama bin Laden's teacher, one of his teachers, was Muhammad Qutb, who was the brother of Sayyid Qutb, the chief ideologue of the Muslim Brotherhood. What I'm doing you, for you right now is called in the Talmud Shal Shelatamu'a the chain of learning. In Islam it's called Isnad, also the chain of learning. The Islamic movement, the Muslim Brotherhood, was founded by Hassan al-Banna in 1928 and it was aimed at corrupt Islamic governments. It was founded 20 years before the State of Israel. and nothing to do with the State of Israel. And its primary objectives were to go after corrupt rulers. And that indeed was the objective of people like Osama bin Laden, uh, Ayman Zawahiri, uh, the blind Sheikh Omar Abdurrahman, who was responsible for the assassination of Sadat. That's who they went after. They switched their targets at a certain point because it's easier to get people to join your ranks if they're Muslims, if you're not attacking Muslims. So you may start with that, you may go back to it, but to get people in your organization and to 
get people to contribute money, you'll start to attack Jews in America, because that's always a popular target in the Islamic world. But it's like Saddam Hussein's throwing rockets at Israel when he was really after Kuwait. You have to pay attention to the difference between the tactic and the strategy. So when you get a Bill O'Reilly, or a Michael Scheuer, or a Rand Paul, or a John Kerry, saying it's all because of what the U.S. is doing with Israel, you show a few examples that show that it's absolutely wrong. And this is the, the line that's been going in the State Department since 1948. Basically, if you're close to Israel, they won't like you. Today, you have a situation where even Saudi Arabia, behind the scenes, is saying, let's support Israel and stop Iran. It's almost at a point right now that if Netanyahu said to the United, to, to the United States, you know what, we don't really need American aid. The Saudis will give us the aid. And they'll also give us basic facilities to attack the reactors. I write it as a joke, but it's, it's got a lot of validity to it. The Saudis were responsible for a doctrine that's known as the Wahhabi Doctrine. This doctrine preceded the Muslim Brotherhood. Where did the term Muslim Brotherhood begin? The Ikhwan was a movement used by the Wahhabis. It was their shock troops. When they went into Arabia and they threw out the Hashemites, they'd kill the Hashemites, they'd gut them, and they'd throw their entrails over the fortress walls. They were brutal. And Hassan al-Banna was influenced by the way they conquered Arabia in the early 1920s. And he said, I want to be like them. And he named his movement Jama'iyat al-Ikhwan al-Muslimun, the Society of the Muslim Brothers. But the Ikhwan, the term brotherhood, had actually been part of Wahhabi Islam. And to this day, the Saudis have spread this doctrine throughout the world to mosques in London. Tamas in California, Orange County has a beautiful big mosque. They don't yet have Muslims, but they've got these huge buildings. The Saudis basically did it because they wanted to say, we understand you want to come after us, why don't you go outside first? So they tried to direct it elsewhere. But now it's coming back after them. They did it for years. <coughs> the problem with a guy like O'Reilly or Scheuer or Rand Paul. They don't really take the time to study the history. It's easier to say Israel's responsible. Israel isn't responsible. Pay attention to Khomeini. Why did he call Israel little Satan and America the big Satan? Because America is more of a draw on Muslims, drawing them away from a pure life, as it were. McDonald's, the women in bikinis, etc., etc., than Israel. They don't care about Israel. Israel's a little pinprick. What do they care? But why does he care about America? Because America is destroying their image of Islam. And they want to get to that pure Islam. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood wants a Sunni version of pure Islam. 
Ayatollah Khomeini and his followers want a pure version of Shia Islam. Neither one of them is primarily interested in Israel or even in the United States. But as a tactic, they will use both. Now, if I answered your question in 30 seconds with three jokes, that would be the perfect answer. But I can do it also. But I, I wanted to be more intellectual with you and give you the actual grounding for it. But you can form an answer and say, Al-Qaeda came from the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood was founded before Israel. And indeed, the Wahhabi movement was founded before the United States. Uh, that's it. So you're answering intellectually. How about politically? What's happening in this country? What's going on in the, in the corridors of power? The biggest problem for somebody who's facing a complicated solution, we've all had this in our lives. We, I don't want to say we mess up. I was about to say something else. We mess up. And our wives or our husbands are standing next to us when we mess up. And they distracted us for half a second, but we really messed up, and we jump on them. You know, we all do it, right? Our kids, whatever it happens to be. It's always easier to attack somebody closer to you than to look at yourself or to look at the real problem. The real problem is hard. It's a lot easier to attack your ally in the back whether it's Israel, whether it's France. You know something? It's absolutely shocking that the Obama administration leaks material about what Israel does in Iran or other places. Syria. All of Syria, all the time. It's outrageous. But that's what they do, because it's easier to go after your ally than to really deal with the problem. The problem is a vexing problem and a difficult problem and to face the problem, you might have to say, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe Edward Said wasn't right. Maybe it's a little deeper than what he said. Maybe he didn't know Arabic. Maybe he didn't know the Middle East. Maybe it's not all about American or Western imperialism. That's a problem. And Unfortunately, a lot of our intellectual circles, a lot of our media, particularly on the Democratic side, but also on the isolationist Republican side, get guys to say, why do we have to give foreign aid? Wow, God. Well, if you want to win the battle of ideas, you have to build libraries in some of these communities and let people learn that America, Israel, France, are successful societies, build good subway systems, have people that have startup companies, because they do some other things also, like free press. And if you don't invest in that, you may not win converts, but you should try. Not just drones. Drones are nice, but not. Um, there are a lot of people that I speak to that feel that the Israeli political class tied in with Washington's political class. And as long as they were, they had the approval of, the, of Washington, they ignored the, the, the anti-Semitic propaganda that was spreading throughout the college campuses here. What do you think? You want to be a little bit more specific? You're just going to let me wander with that. 
A little All right, say it a little louder just so that everybody can hear you. The American political class and the Israeli political class. Well, no, the other way around. There, there, there's a feeling um, among many people that the Israeli political class tied, was able to tie in with the American political class. And in the process, they felt very secure and ignored the fact that on college campuses uh, that uh, the propaganda of anti-Semitism was was taking place and was growing. I have to give names to what you're saying. The American, the Israeli political class <clears throat> is generally dominated by the left of center, media and academia. Similar to the U.S., but even more so, because the media in Israel are even more left-dominated. Most of the people who became editors in Israel, ran newspapers, did so at a time when Mapai, the Israeli Labor Party, was the totally dominant party in Israel. And they've continued to dominate both the media, the judiciary, and academia. I know because I have three children at Hebrew University, and I see who they study with and what gets studied. And a lot of these people wanted to believe that <clears throat> if you plant an olive tree in an Arab village and they come to you and they salam, it's all going to be fine. And that you don't have a problem. Israel's president, Shimon Peres, would say publicly, time and time again, you don't have a problem with Hezbollah, you don't have a problem with PR, or getting your viewpoint across. You have a problem because of your policy. You're an occupier, that's your problem. That's your problem. And therefore, forget about PR. Yossi Balin, the father of the Oslo Accord, said this time and time again. It's positive that in Israel today, Yossi Balin could not be elected even to be dog catcher in Ramat Gan. And it's positive that most Israelis, even though they're willing to make tremendous concessions for peace, do not believe in the PLO, certainly not Hamas, and don't believe in making concessions to them. This is very positive. And yet, you have the Israeli media suggesting today, for example, that Shimon Peres, at the age of 93, should leave the office of president and run against Netanyahu as the standard bearer of the Israeli left and the peace camp. Santa Claus is more realistic. I mean, can you imagine this? And yet there are people in the Israeli press who, who say this time and time again. I'm not going to dump on Shimon Peres, but to suggest that he could be a candidate for anything both in terms of his record and his, his physical state. It's just a joke. And yet, that's true in Israel. You have the chattering class saying that. So you have part of the chattering class in Israel with the chattering class in the United States. You know that Bill Clinton worked very hard for the election of Ehud Barak in 1999. George H.W. Bush helped the campaign of Yitzhak Rabin in 1992. 
and Barack Obama would have liked to have helped. Okay? We know that. God forbid an Israeli should ever get involved in an American election. Right? But that's the fact of life. And that's basically where it, where it goes. I think this, to a certain extent, began when Abba Iban, after the Labor Party lost power, once got out of power, the first place he went was he got on a plane and went to West 43rd Street to talk to the editorial board of the New York Times. Of course, all of a sudden they wanted to hear everything that Abba Iban had to say. They'd been ignoring him for years on other issues, but when he wanted to say bad things about Likud or the Israeli right, Fantastic. It's true. It's true. And to this day, if you go into the Israeli foreign ministry, they do a bad job on hospital. They do a bad job on college campuses. It's all true. I'll tell you a quick story. 2007, I'm the Schusterman visiting professor at Washington University in St. Louis. And the Consul General of Israel in Atlanta decides that he's going to use the CNN Middle East director as a guest at his consul. I don't remember the, the, the lady's name, but she was very anti-Israel. But he wanted connections with her, and he all kinds of stuff like that. So I immediately wrote a letter to him. And I said, you know, you have three Schusterman professors in the United States who come from Israel, are Israeli, speak Arabic and Hebrew, why are you using the person from CNN? Especially when you know that CNN stands for certainly not news. I mean, why? I got no real response, of course. But this kind of thing happens all the time. Uh, the Israeli government uses the foreign ministry as a place to dump people who can't get other jobs. And the Israeli foreign ministry pool of cadets is usually stacked very far to the left, secular left, etc., etc. And they come to the United States for two years, and they spend the better part of 19, 20 months first finding out how to take the F train to Jamaica or how to get into the bargain basement of Bloomingdale's. I mean, they, they really, they don't really get training, they don't really do what they have to do. I've been through this with generations of Israeli foreign ministry officials. I can tell you stories. I would just blow you away. Are they going to do something about it? You know something? If you have a prime minister like Netanyahu, who probably knows more about the press than any other politician in the world, and he doesn't do something about it, why blame anybody else? And I like Netanyahu personally. And I'm one of the few people who will criticize him to his face. And he won't get pissed off because he knows I'm not looking for a job. But really, Netanyahu knows. A few years ago, Netanyahu had a, I won't go, too much insight. So I, again, I'm not going to, I can tell you stuff, you, you, you go bananas. You, you name a foreign minister, like David Levy, who can't speak English. You name a foreign minister yes. like Tsipi Livni, who until recently couldn't speak English. Which you can now speak English a little bit. Why? Do you care? Would Barack Obama make 
somebody is Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State unless they agreed with him and were going to do his policies? Netanyahu knows more about the press than anybody. He knows how to speak to an audience. I mean, he, he did a few numbers on, on Barack Obama from the press corps of the White House. They still haven't forgiven him for that. But he knows. He knows what's going. Why doesn't he invest in it? If you really care about it, and you think it's important, and you think that getting the U.S. college campus, getting the U.S. media is not just nice, but an important tactical and strategic goal, invest in it. Why the tactic of the, the chattering class and all of this? Do it. It's like the Nike shirt, right? Yeah. Just do it. Why is there no talk up front about a mutant right Why is that an okay? Well, I have, a, I have a friend, colleague, Mark Langfound, used to use terminology like that. The problem with using that kind of, of, of use a different term. Yeah, but if you use, I want to explain. If you use the term Judenrein, you immediately bring up the idea of the Holocaust, and, and it turns off a lot of people. If you say, look, you want to believe in a two-state solution? and understand that the other state really believes in a final solution without Jews. How do we know? They say it. Look at the latest speech by Mahmoud Abbas, who people like to call Abu Mazen. What Abu Mazen means? Father of Mazen. It's like calling Joseph Stalin Uncle Joe. It's the nickname in Arabic. It's like calling Nikita Khrushchev Nikita Sergeyevich. You know, it's nice. The things that he says about Israel and about removing all Jews from the West Bank and from Gaza, like they're foreign organisms. You have to talk about it. You're right. You do have to talk about it. I talk about it. I wouldn't use the term you wrong. I just. Are you about the territories or the well, in Israel also, it's also true in Israel. Well, I mean, if you look, if you look, if you're absolutely right, if you look at the documents of the PLO, which have never been repealed, despite what Bill Clinton and Bibi Netanyahu said in 1998, the uh, the Palestinian covenant has ever never been repealed, and there are even documents proving it. It's not even been revised. It's nothing. Uh, just listen to their TV. Watch Mahmoud Abbas greet terrorists home and say what they did is, is heroism. And not even attacks that occurred before the Oslo Accords, but attacks that occurred after the Oslo Accords. That's what you have to talk about. I would have no pity on this guy. I, I have videos of him where he said to Hamas, let our rifles, all our rifles, be, named, be aimed at the occupation. And I use them, I show them to my students. Because he's not a moderate. That's not moderate. And that's what you gotta do. You gotta name names, give facts, show. Yeah. You gotta do it. No excuse not to. Uh, I mean, I guess it's a little off topic, but. Um, I had an Arabic professor, Pierre Kakia 
probably the number one expert in the world on Arab literature. Every time at Columbia we'd give a class and he'd start to da 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 and then I'd ask a question, like you. And I'd say, da 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 and he'd start to tell a joke about this, that, and he'd go into something that was fantastically interesting. And 20 minutes later, I'd say, I'm sorry, Professor Kakia, I took you off on a tangent. And he'd say to me, Michael, always follow the tangent. It's always more interesting. Okay. Uh, you were mentioning how Islam uh, mirrors Judaism in terms of its construction, in terms of its spread of knowledge. I was curious because uh, Judaism in the mid-1800s had a huge liberalizing movement. You had uh, the meetings in Germany, all across Germany, Wolfheim, uh, Azharais, uh, Frankel, you know, all of these people. Why are we not seeing a similar movement in Islam uh, between people who really want to liberalize the religion and try and discover what, what, what reform Islam would look like or what conservative Islam would look like instead of going necessarily as Wahhab and Qutub and all these people have gone to the more um, traditionalist side. You have. I disagree with your nomenclature. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily take the reform movement in Germany as the liberal movement. We have liberal movements in Judaism all the time. Judaism in general is very liberal because you always have the majority view and the minority view, and they don't kill the person in the minority view. There's Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Hillel and Shammai. Hillel wins, he's got more students, and they don't kill the people in Beit Shammai. That's minority view. And then in 20 years, if one of the rabbis says, you know, Shammai had a point, and then they use the minority view to make a ruling. That's liberalism in Judaism. I'm just briefly. There was a movement in Islam, Muhammad Abdul, and um, Al-Afghani that tried to combine sources in Islam with modernism at the beginning of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century. They were basically pushed aside. Yeah, and there was also a movement, the Nahda, the literary movement inside Egypt, where people like um, Tawfiq al-Hakim, and, and uh, Naguib al-Mahfouz looked to European literary models and tried to go with that a little bit. They were pushed aside. Could they go back to it? I think they could. I think they could. This is a long answer. For, I'll give you a short answer to a very long question. Your question is a big question. Uh, The Arab national movements and the Islamic movements basically are a search for a return to old glory. The old glory is Muhammad and his armies conquering the world. And or the Umayyad Empire, the Abbasid Empire, the Caliphate. And you want to return to that kind of glory. You don't want to be in a situation where you look at the world you look at the UN Development Report and you say, the Arab world is more backward than black Africa, the darkest spot of black Africa. How is that possible? That with so much money, I mean, we could be practical about it and say, they build buildings with 120 floors and they forget to put in the toilet, you know, which they do, and, you know, 
And that's a, that kind of symbol, symbolizes it. But uh, that's what you're dealing with. When you see a Bin Laden or a Gamal Abdel Nasser leading a pan-Arab movement, they're trying to call back this glory. And they're taking a shortcut. When you look at a Sadat or a Mubarak, they're not Democrats, but they're not blood-curdling murderers. And they say, the door to modernity is respect for Islam, but also an opening to the West, in fitah, incrementally to build, slowly, but and they succeed. But how do you picture success? You're running up and down escalator that's moving at 40 miles an hour, and after 20 years, it's moving at 20 miles an hour, and you're still running up the down escalator, and you sell it to your people, and you say, we've made progress. And they say, we wanted to stop running down. But you say, it takes a while. That's very hard. It's much easier to say, see this? I knocked down those two good buildings. Okay, Get inspired. OK, but, he, but even in the West, where these things happen without the down escalator issue, without the poverty issue, uh, why, why is that not really developed here? I mean, there are, you can name on your hands how many Muslim uh, liberals there really are. I thought you were going to go with your last part of your question someplace else. I thought you were going to say, even in the West, we do the same thing. We say, see, I got Bin Laden's assistant, rather than say, we opened up two new libraries in Alexandria, which we also do here in the West. We've got the same political crime also going on. But you do have people. For example, in Minnesota, the Somali community is working with the FBI to try and keep people from radicalizing the mosques. We know that in London, people are working with the authorities to throw out the crazy Wahhabists. Even though you see more of the crazy Wahhabists on TV, you're seeing some progress with that. There are people who want to do that. There are people who realize that that way is not the way. That if you could show shared roots between Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, a path to a God who created all men and women in equality and observation of good principles of living, then you can build a decent society. That's good. And that's the kind of Muslim, kind of Jew, kind of Christian I'd like to see. Uh, so this will be the final question we're supposed to be ready to pose. What do you think of the talks that are going on? Do you have any hopes for any progress? Which talks? Israel and uh, Abbas. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about Syria and Iran. If anybody would like to attend, please tell Jenny that you'll be there. And if you want a book, I'll give you a nice autograph. Thank you.
What did America do to those uh, spies that instead of 